0: The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. And from the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is focusing on the internal, on what men, women are like in their minds and hearts. And as we're nearing the end of chapter 5, the primary kind of push or thirst of Matthew verses 21 through 48 is our Lord Jesus Christ kind of reemphasizes all these things, the divine standards for living in his kingdom that he's already given in the Old Testament. These things are not new, but he's giving uh, Old Testament in contrast to the Jewish tradition. And contrary to what Pharisees were doing at that time, because they were all External, superficial, Uh, Jesus says that the righteousness God requires first is internal. So we need to understand if righteousness does not reside or exist in the heart, it does not exist at all. And again, Jesus is not modifying the law of Moses or anything like that. That's why in verses 17, he says, don't think I came to destroy destroy the law and the prophets. So he's just re instating, correcting it for them because they have long forgotten it, neglected it. And Jesus here in verses 21 through 48, depending on what kind of translation you're using, he gives us six examples and they all start with something similar. It says, you have heard that it was said in verses 21, 27, 31, 33, 38, and 43, all those six examples there which we're going to be looking at. And he's not comparing this to the actual Old Testament, but he's comparing what it was said by Jewish and rabbis by their traditions. So, in these six examples, Jesus shows ways in which God's righteousness surpasses the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Why? Because in verse 20, he said, Unless you're Righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees, you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the examples that Jesus gives us here, verses 21 to 48, are specific subjects murder, sexual sin, divorce, speaking the truth, talks about retaliation, and then also loving your enemies. So he's using all these examples, but they illustrate the same basic principle. And even though it's the same basic principle in all six, I'm going to take my time and go through each six of them. So righteousness is a matter of the heart. Now, we're still dealing with the first one here because last Sunday I kind of ended abruptly because I only gave you 75% of my sermon last Sunday. Can you believe that? I know we were running out of time and I saw some of you already starting to count sheep So I said, hey, so this is really part two of the first sermon, and I'm going to give you the remaining 25% before we move to the next example that Jesus gives in verse 27. So let me remind you of the 75% we covered last Sunday for those of you who were counting sheep. Uh, Matthew 21 through 22 says, You have heard that it was said to those of the old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of judgment. But I say to you, that whoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. So we discussed what murder is. So the term has to do with criminal killing. And for many accounts in the teaching we looked at Scripture, it's clear that capital punishment, just warfare, accidental homicide, if you would, self-defense, all those things are excluded. This is intentional killing of another human being for personal reasons and whatever those reasons may be. So, Jesus here, in his words, shatters the illusion of self-righteousness. Like most people throughout histories, the scribes and Pharisees, and maybe like even us, you know, we're like saying, I'm not all that bad. At least I never killed anybody, right? So, whatever you may have done, you have never committed murder. So, you're righteous. But Jesus come along and says, but I say to you, let me tell you what the Scripture says. You cannot justify yourself just because you can't or you did not commit the physical act of murder because it goes deeper in that. So, this is where people say, well, the Old Testament doesn't apply to us. We're in the New Testament. Well, in the New Testament, really, Jesus is... (laughs) making it even higher than the Old Testament. I mean, it would be a lot easier if we can just do things to be saved, right? Go kill a goat. I'll start a sheep farm, goat farm, so I can just keep on killing them. But Jesus goes deeper than this because murder originates in the heart, not in the hands. It starts with evil thoughts, and then it comes into action. And you know,, me, many people with the deepest feelings in their heart, they have anger, they have anger to such degree that they wish that that person that they have anger against was just dead. And it's the same thing, because anger is only one letter short of danger. And sometimes people say, "It's my cross to bury. No, it's not a cross to bury. It's a sin to conquer. It's a sin to confess. And he was describing murder not only an act by hand, but an attitude of the heart. Murder is the result, but anger is the reason. You can say murder is the flower and anger is the seed. It's the fruit and anger is the root. And I doubt very seriously if I ask somebody if anybody will just, don't raise your hands, if you killed anyone, right? Right? Don't ask, don't tell. I doubt anyone here will raise their hands. But if I ask if you've been ever angry with somebody, I'm sure I see some hands, except a few liars that wouldn't raise their hands. You know, there's a saying that goes, to dwell above with the saints we love, that will be glory, right? But to live below with the saints we know, that's another story. And the word of God is very, very clear in 1 John 3:15, where it says, "Whoever hates his brother is a murderer." And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So in verse 22, Jesus gives us these examples: being angry with another person, saying raka, and being a fool. So we talked about the uh, the evil danger of anger when it's like it's not a righteous anger, but it's selfish anger. Uh, against the brother, whatever that brother may be, brother in Christ or brother just a person. And such anger, Jesus says, is a form of murder. So you would be guilty of judgment. If you harbor this anger, you'd be guilty before the court. That's what he says. And then we talked about the danger of slanders, the raka. Now, we talked about the word doesn't really have... Uh, Exact exact modern translation or equivalent, but it's simply a term of malicious abuse, derision, or uh, slander. Just like what we covered in Psalm 140, verse 3 says, They sharpened their tongues like a serpent, poisoned asps under their lips. To slander a creature made in God's image is to slander God himself. And Jesus is saying that's equivalent of murdering that person. And we talked about the danger of condemning character, where he says if you call somebody a fool, and really, you know, we call somebody a fool, maybe not a fool, but we say, hey, moron, or things like that. Um, but when you call somebody a fool, is you're kind of accusing them of being both stupid and godless. That's why in the Bible, again, you know, the Bible says, a fool said there is no God, so basically he's a godless person. And three illustrations in the verse 22 that we went over, if you look at it, it gives us degrees of seriousness. First, he's angry, basic evil behind murder, then he starts to slander that person, and then kind of condemning character, and he says if you do that, you'll have, that equals punishment of death. Death. Murder itself, and your punishment is fury, hell. So that, in a nutshell, kind of covers verses 21-22, 75% of the sermon in three minutes. But I want to look at verses 21-26 as a whole, because really it's one thought, one example. So let's read verses 21-26, and it says again, You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder whoever murders, Will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, You fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. And then verse 23, again, look at it. It kind of continues the thought because it says, Therefore. Anytime you see a therefore, you see what it's there for. And he says, If you bring a gift, to the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, says, leave your gift before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. And verses 25 says, agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer and you will be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, You will by no means get out of there until you have paid the last penny. So Jesus attacks the sin of anger, the sin of slander, the sin of cursing with destroying their self-righteousness. And then in verses 23-24, he gives the answer to anger, which is reconciliation. Another word that I want you to kind of alternate and use here is peacemaking. And the effect not only on their righteousness, but it affects the way we worship God or the way that God views our worship to him. Look at verses 23 and 24. He says, therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, he says, leave your gift before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come offer your gift. And I want us to see this because it's kind of so simple, we miss it sometimes. And Jesus moves from Pharisees and the scribes and the people to himself and for us into the area of worship. And you see, worship was a major issue for the scribes and the Pharisees. That's all they did. That's what their life consisted of, worship. But the Lord here condemns their very worship. He says in verse 23 again, therefore, if you bring a gift to the altar, and there, you're at the altar now, remember that your brother has something against you. That therefore means since God's concerned with all these internal things, since God's concerned with the attitude towards others, how you feel about your brother, or you curse him, or you're concerned with those things, or you're angry at him, But he says, if you bring your gift to the altar, so you come to church, and you remember that the brother has anything against you, he says, leave your gift, go be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. In other words, this reconciliation, this peacemaking comes before worship and it's a powerful point because the idea the example jesus uses here is very common to him it's very obvious and it's very simple because if you committed a sin what happened in the old days in those jesus testament times how was it remedied if you would you repent and so forth and then you bring an animal sacrifice yeah but you see jesus is saying the animal is not the issue your heart is. Your obedience in the heart is better than sacrifice. This sacrifice is just the impression or what's happening internally. That's all it is. But when breach came and the man repented, he asked for forgiveness from God, said before God, and brought a sacrifice. So picture here. Here comes you know, when they come into the temple, if you look at their temples and so forth, they had different courts. You know, you have to, before you go to the priest, you have to pass the woman's court and all that stuff. So you're walking around the way, you're coming in church through the lot and so forth. And then he finally gets to the priest and he can't go any further because certain areas are only for priests. Uh, they weren't allowed to go there. And he lays his hands on the sacrifice with the priest. And Jesus says, there at that point, he says, if you... Remember someone who has something against you. Go and be reconciled. But a lot of us would be like, hey, I already got this far, right? Just finish off the sacrifice so I can go home. But he says, no. See, to settle the breach between men and men, that's what needs to be done before you can settle a breach between men and God. And really, men's lack of harmony... Reality is man's lack, and when I say men's, I'm just mean humankind, not just I'm not being sexist. Men's lack of harmony with God is really that causes the lack of harmony between each other. You see, in first John um, chapter 4, verses 20 and 21 says this: if someone says I love God and hates his brother, He's a liar. For he does not love his brother whom he has seen. How can he love God whom he hasn't seen? And this commandment we have from him that he who loves God must love his brother also. So, how are you going to say you're going to offer me a sacrifice and so forth and forgiveness when really you don't love me? I love God. No. How can you love me if you haven't seen me, but the brother that's standing right in front of you, you don't love? You're a liar. So you see, a lot of, we have a, what I call a wasted worship, and we'll get to that in a moment. We have wasted worship. Now again, this is anything, this is not new to them. God's not changing, Jesus not changing their standards or God's standards. Look at Isaiah 1.11. It says, to what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me? This is Old Testament. Already at that time, God's saying, what's the purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me? He says, Lord, I have had enough of your burnt offerings of the rams and the fat and the fed of cattle. I do not delight in the blood of the bulls or the lambs of the goats. And all they're doing is like, You're killing on the sheep. Here you go, God. Here you go, God. Here you go, God. And he's saying, I had enough. I don't want it anymore. Your vain sacrifices. Looking at Isaiah uh, verses 13 and 14, it says, Bring no more futile sacrifices. Your incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, and the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity in sacred meetings. The moons, your appointed feast, God says, My soul hates. They're trouble to me. I'm weary of bearing them. And then verse 15 says, When you spread out your hands, when we come and say, Oh, Jesus, I love you, worship you, and praise you. He says, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, come in here and lift up prayers. Remember, I'm telling you that prayer is the most important service that we have on Wednesday nights because, you know, prayer gets us something that God can do. And that's all I want is something God can do, not what I can do. But here he says, if you come with this attitude, you come to a prayer meeting with that attitude, he says, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Now, when he says hands are full of blood, is every Jew was a murderer physically? No. But he's saying your hands are full of blood because God equates hatred and all those things we discussed about and anger equivalent to murder. So all of us got hands on our, full of, your hands are full of blood. And he gives it instructions in verses 16 through 17 in 1st Isaiah. He says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, put away the evils of your doings before my eyes, cease to do evil. It's interesting, he calls them murderers, but then he doesn't talk like, don't kill each other, right? No, he says, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow. What he's saying is, I don't care, and don't come to worship me. Don't come dare to worship me with your religion until you made your life right with the poor, as we read in verse 17 there. Oppressed, the widows, the orphans. In other words, these are our brothers. Deal with them, then deal with me. And Isaiah wasn't done. In chapter 58, verses uh, 5 through 7, he's talking about their fasting. And verse 5 says, Is it a fast that I have chosen, a day for man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head like a bulrush and to spread a sackcloth of ashes? He says, Would you call this a fast, an acceptable day to the Lord? And then he corrects it and says, is this not the fast that I have chosen, to lose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke? It is not to share your bread with your hungry and bring to your house the poor who are cast out. When you see the naked, that you cover them and not hide yourself from your own flesh. In other words, he says, don't come to me with your phony worship until you meet the need of your brother. What's the Lord saying? There's again nothing new. Breach between man and man came before breach man and God. How can you love God when you don't love man? In Jeremiah, in verses uh, chapter seven, verses 9, 7, uh, 7, uh, nine and ten says this: Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, this pagan god? And walk after other gods who do you not know. So they are doing all these things, right? Stealing, murder, adultery, swear falsely, worshiping pagan gods that they picked up. And then in verse says 10, he says this, And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered to all these abominations. You do all these things, then you come to my house and offer me your worship? I don't want it. I don't want it. Get out of here. Go make those relationships right. Fix your heart. Check your heart. And the picture here is very vivid. And he's saying, even if the Pharisees and the scribe with all their religion, they come all this worship and all their, how would you say, all these little, thingamajiggies that they do, God says, I don't want any of it. Go away until it's right with your brother. It's far more important to be reconciled to your brother, folks, than fulfill external duties of worship. That's what he's saying here. And the same principle applies to us. There's a lot of worship that is in vain that God does not accept. Some of us may proud ourselves. Maybe we give a lot of money to church. We put a church, you know, put an envelope in the, in the in the plate. You're offering the sacrifices. You're giving it to God. Say, God, thank you for blessing me financially so I can give back. God says, I don't want it. You pray, but God didn't hear your prayer. You sing, you say, awesome, worship this morning. God's not pleased with your music. Why? Because you were not reconciled to your brother. Again, verse 23. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there, remember that your brother has something against you. Did you see that? It's interesting. I was reading this. And studying, it isn't even that you're angry. Remember, we talked about if you're angry at somebody, you're accused of murder. But here he's saying it's not that you're angry, I don't want your worship. But he's saying if somebody's angry at you, <laughs> do you see that? When we know and remember somebody's angry at us, God says, go be reconciled because I don't want your worship either. Speaks of the holiness. Holiness of God. Now, if you're angry with somebody, you'd danger of condemnation in verse 23 says, if anybody's angry with you, I don't want your worship. Leave your gift, be reconciled, and then come and offer it. So our Lord shows his holiness. And in the fact that he's not even dealing with the anger of the one worshiping, that he's dealing in verse 22, he's dealing now with the anger against the worshiper. Somebody's anger against me, and I know that, and I remember that. God's saying, I don't want you preaching up there, you're preaching? Go be reconciled. If you know that somebody's upset at you, you mean they know sometimes we don't know. But if you know, God's saying here, if you know that they're angry against you, you better go and settle that. You know, we can understand God doesn't want us to be angry. It should control my temper and so forth. But here he changes it and says, Somebody's angry at you, and you don't reconcile. That's the same thing as murder. Isn't that tough? It's pretty strong. Now, obviously, we cannot change the person's heart or attitude, but our desire and effort should be close to kind of reconcile whatever that breach may be from the other side so that person won't hold anger against us. Now, I'm going to point this out because sometimes people misunderstand me when I say this. And folks, to be honest with you, I have a lot of people that are mad with me. You know that? How can they be? Imagine that. And every time I speak, folks, it does get worse. What's true in Psalm 120 verse 7 says, I'm for peace. But when I open my mouth, when I speak, they are for war. And let me give you some examples of that. For example, I know some people, and there was actually a study that was done, they, uh, a survey, not a study. They surveyed over 3,000 born-again Christians. And 70% of them said that there are other ways to heaven than Jesus. This is born-again believers. Now, I've met some of these folks, and I would tell them that they're heretics. Because if you say you're a born-again believer, and there's another way, you haven't experienced the second birth. You haven't. And you haven't studied the Word of God, because clearly in Acts 4.12 it says, "No, there is any salvation in any other, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved." Did you read that verse? Did you hear what Jesus said himself in John 14, 6? Says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Now there are other born-again believers, they're mad at me or angry because sometimes I wouldn't cover their lie. I wouldn't go along with their plan or whatever it is. You know, their excuses. There's Christian liberty. Or, my favorite one, and I've heard this, we'll repent later. Really? You'll repent later? But look at what Proverbs twelve twenty two says, Lion lips are abomination to the Lord, but those who deal truthfully are his delight. And folks, in situations like that, when they mad at you for those types of reasons, I'm going to tell you, it's better to be separated by truth than united in error. I'm telling you. Romans 12, 18 says, if it's possible, as much as depends on you, leave peacefully with all men. You see that where it says if it's possible? So that tells us that it's not always going to be possible. Every man and woman of God will have those that don't love him. Again, can you believe that? Brush my hair, put on my suit, and they still don't love me. Jesus Christ did not get along with everybody, and everybody did not get along with Jesus. Now, we studied the Beatitudes, right, in the beginning. Look at verse 9 in Matthew 5. Here's Jesus doing his sermon, saying, Blessed are the peacemakers, again, we're using that word reconciliation, for they shall be called the sons of God. So Jesus is instructing us here in verse 9 to be peacemakers, and we covered that. And then he says, "Hey, if you remember, you come to the altar, you offer your gift. You remember something? Your brother has something against you. Go get reconciled, be at peace." But look what he says in verse uh, Matthew 10, verse 34. This is Jesus speaking. He says, "Don't think that I came to bring peace on earth. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword." What? Look at Luke 12, 51. He says, do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? I tell you, not at all, but rather division. So if we take these verses, verses out of context, it seems that Jesus is a hypocrite. First tells us to be peaceful and go reconcile, but then he himself ain't doing it. If he tells us to be peaceful, then he says he doesn't bring peace. As a matter of fact, if you look at that last verse in 51, it says, rather division. Continue looking in verse 52 and 53, says, For from now on, on five in house will be divided three against two and two against three. In verse 53, father will be divided against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and so forth, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. What this means is this reconciliation does not come, or this peace does not come at any price, folks. Now, Jesus knew there was going to be conflict before there could be peace, and conflict had to be resolved. But you see, when we have to be a peacemaker, and the reconciliation has to happen not on my terms, not on your terms, but it has to happen on God's terms in order for this peacemaking or this reconciliation to be real, it has to be based on truth. That's the only rate you're going to have true reconciliation or peace. Now, we all need to avoid needless conflict in family and business or whatever, but never, never sacrificing the truth or the word of God. They cannot be compromised on these things. And you're trying to be a peacemaker. You're trying to point out some sinful lifestyle or anything like that in another person. What are they going to do? You tell them they have to deal with the sin people don't like to hear that they're going to be mad at you but there's nothing i can do because biblically i'm being loving now we have to be again loving we can't condemn them because we have to point out use scripture what god says about the situation and point to the solution right that's what Jesus was doing. He's kind of delivering all the bad news. You have to understand the bad news before you can truly understand how good news what the good news are is and how good it is. So we still have to be loving and display grace. I remember somebody telling me that every sinner is a potential saint, lest we forget. And that's true. But there are other reasons that people can be mad at us, and we need to be reconciled. As a matter of fact, again, I'll use myself as an example. I had to get reconciled, not the other way, but the other person had legitimate reasons to be mad at me. Now, in my heart and things like that, I didn't think I did anything wrong, right? I mean, look at me. How can I do anything wrong? All I did was watch TV and was watching this. You guys ever heard of this? uh, uh, It's called an apple pear fruit. It's like an apple and pear in one. If anyone has a Costco membership, go get it. It is delicious. But it's crunchy and it's juicy. And I was eating it. You know, you ever sat next to somebody who's eating an apple or whatever? And I was watching TV. Now, I have to say it was 2 o'clock in the morning. My wife was laying next to me trying to get some sleep. And, you know, the next morning she was mad at me. I had no idea. Why would she be mad at that, you know? Because she has to go to work. All I have to do is go down the hall and make it right. She didn't get enough sleep. And I had to reconcile. can't be mad at me. I'm sorry. Now I always ask, can I eat an apple in here? You want me to go back to the kitchen? And so, folks, sometimes, you know, we sit around we also say how it relates to us, church here, because it's talking about worship. And sometimes I get suggestions, and there's nothing wrong with suggestions. You know, sometimes people say, if we had this in church, our worship would be more livelier. Maybe if we had architecture, if we had this kind of coffee maybe, I don't know, I'm just making that one up, more people would come. If we did this, we'll enhance our worship. But what Jesus is saying here, true worship. You know, they're doing their sacrifices, they had the horns, and they did all that kind of stuff in the temple. But Jesus points out that true worship is not at hands by better music, by better prayers, by better architecture, or even by better preaching. What he's saying here, true worship is, is enhanced, made better by the relationships between those that come to worship. That's why Psalm 133, verse 1 says, Behold, how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And what's our unity? We all have different tastes and so forth. This is our unity, right? This makes evil ground or even ground for everybody. Same rules apply to you that apply to me. This makes it ground level because we have one authority over us. Listen, if people come here, maybe husbands, wives, you have bitterness between each other, or maybe the children mad at their parents or parents mad at their children, and you come to worship here, worship God. No, God says, I don't want your worship, it's vain pointless. And I believe that there are times when we come to church, there are feelings against somebody else in the fellowship, or a neighbor, or who cares, this neighbor down the street. Maybe it's a person that you fellowship with that you don't particularly care for. But God is saying, I'm not interested in your worship. It's a sham. you Put up your hands. You worship. You sing your heart out, and so I can't. I don't hear you. Psalm sixty-six, eighteen says, "If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear." So, if in the presence of God, while we're trying to worship God actively, no, there is sin in my heart, and I have not dealt with it. I haven't confessed it. Your worship is useless. There is no value in it at all. There's no value. 1 Samuel fifteen twenty two says, So Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices? As obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of the rams. He doesn't want your sacrifices, whatever it may be. So you say, well, how do I find that person who's angry with me? Right? Well, the implication here says that you know when you come to the altar, when you're there and you remember, sometimes the Holy Spirit reminds us of those things. Obviously, I know there's probably a lot more people angry with me than I know of, but I'm not going to be running around asking everybody. And there are other times when somebody's angry with me and I know it, I try to reconcile, I do my best ask for forgiveness and so forth. So Jesus here again. His words are devastating. He's saying destroying their self righteousness, and then he says, "Not only you're not righteous, but I don't even God doesn't even want your worship." Now, how do you take care of this? This is verses 25 and 26. So you come to the altar. You come to worship. The Holy Spirit reminds you that somebody has against you, and it's legitimate. Because in verses we read, somebody's angry with his brother without cause. So, you know, we're not sacrificing the truth. But now you come to the altar, it reminds you that somebody's mad at you or has something against you. You leave. What, what do you do? Look at verses 25 and 26 this agree with your adversary quickly. While you're on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, and the judge hands you over to the officer, and you be thrown in prison. I surely, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. Well, what he's saying here, again, Jesus is using examples from that time, and he borrowed an illustration here from old legal method, dealing with debtors in Jewish society. So this verse, is, these two verses are really kind of a commentary to the previous two, if you would. So he's using a common example, practice of imprisoning a person for an unpaid debt. And D- Jesus here teaches if someone holds that debt of, against us, he's to make good on it soon, as soon as possible. Says quickly. Tomorrow's too late. He's saying, do not allow this bitterness, this anger, this hatred, or the sin keep us separated from other people and worshiping God. And what's happening here, because the Romans were in charge, Roman law provided that the plaintiff could bring the accused with him and face the judge. However, while he's bringing him, that's why it says, when you're on the way, before you even get to court, you can handle it between you and the party. If a man had wronged someone, he should make friends quickly, meaning settle the account with his adversary before You get to court and face a judge because what's going to happen? There's a sequence, if you look at that verse, going from judge to the officer, right, and then prison. So, judge finds somebody guilty. He says, bailiff, take the, put him in handcuffs, right, and he takes him to prison. Same thing here. And to avoid judgment in prison, he had to pay, it says, every last penny, every last cent owed. So the illustration is a picture of sin against another person. Such sin must be resolved to avoid having to face a sentence, not from court or a civil judge, but from the divine judge. And penalty, what Jesus alludes to here, is not really made clear being thrown into prison and not being able to get out of there until the debt is paid. But either way, it's talking about God's punish, punishment. Could be hell, or it could be. As a believer, could be chastised. But the basic teaching is plain unmistakable. We are to make every effort. He says, no delay, quickly. Agree with your adversaries. Avoid this punishment. So let me summarize this and say, Pharisee scribes who are depending on their self righteousness, just because they don't kill outwardly, think you're holy. He says. If you're angry, if you said a malicious word about someone's character, if you cursed or condemned someone, you're a murderer. And therefore, I don't want your worship. Go settle that because you're going to be in danger of judgment. And when you get into a conflict with somebody, immediately, he says, as fast as you can, resolve the issue because you may be in danger of hell or chastisement. So he's saying the fact that you don't murder is just a little piece of the iceberg. You got grudges. You get never settled. Your worship is hypocrisy. You're angry. Death and hell is what you deserve. That's what he's saying. Isn't it easier just to do the Old Testament? Hey, I never killed anyone, right? But when he goes and expands all this stuff, it's just like, we're all murderers. And if you're a murderer, you deserve death. So, who's a murderer? Have you ever been angry? Maybe with your wife, husband, child? Maybe we uttered something underneath my breath. That Cornelius Tranquil better hurry up and end discern me. Got a football game to attend. You come to worship, you have bitterness in your heart. The Word of God tells us you're the same as murder because you allowed this conflict, hatreds, to be in your heart. So the first question is, who's a murderer? And I think we can all agree if we look to the Word, all of us. Second question is, who deserves hell? Again, we read in 1 John 3.15, whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and he says, the murderer has eternal life abiding in him. In Galatians 5.21 it says, envy, murderers, drunkenness, and so forth. It says, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You see, we're all guilty of murder. We're all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And what's the, what's the punishment? Wages of sin is what? Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. So how can you escape it? I mean, if we're all murderers and no murderer will inherit the kingdom, we deserve hell. I mean, we're all worshiping hypocrisy here and there, right? If We're honest. So how can we go to heaven? We've all been angry. we are all said things we didn't want to say, but all these things are in the heart. That's why they're coming out. But look at the Sarkin part of that verse. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He wants to drive people to the fact that they cannot be righteous on their own. He wants to drive people and us to the knees, food across, that imputed righteousness that only Christ can give us, folks. That's the only righteousness God will accept. So, everything that God is, or Jesus is saying here, is kind of driving everybody in frustration, showing us inadequacy. And again, it's kind of like giving them people the bad news. But, folks, He died our death. He entered our hell so He can give us this righteousness. You deserve death. I deserve death. You deserve hell. I deserve hell. We're all murderers. All the Pharisees were scribes and everybody in this world. But Jesus died the death and offers us this gift of righteousness. That's the good news. That's the meaning of the gospel. So when we clearly see, not just externals, but how internally wicked we are, and we need a Savior, we need to understand that no flesh will be justified by works. As Romans 3.20 says, Therefore the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For the law is the knowledge of sin. But the righteousness we desperately need, again, comes as a gift of God, and Paul calls this righteousness of Jesus Christ that's imputed in us. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.21. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Right? You with me so far? And he says that we might become the righteousness of Of God in Him. Now let me close with this. God had every reason to be angry with us, righteous anger, right? God had every reason to hate us. God is angry with the wicked every day. God had every reason to hold us in contempt. God had every reason to curse us, send us away. Just on this one. There's other sins that we talk about, but just on this particular issue, because we're all murderers. But you know something? He loves us, doesn't he? He forgives us. He pays our debt. Wonder wonders. He seeks to reconcile us to himself. He's doing the reconciliation. So we can go into his internal kingdom. He wants to have fellowship with us. Again, I don't want to preach this sissified God that's happening around these days. Jesus needs you. No, he doesn't. He's a living God. But if you don't want none, then that's fine. But he wants everybody to be saved. He wants to reconcile to himself. Isn't that incredible? You see, because Jesus understands our true problem. And the heart of the human problem Heard me say this before, is the human heart. And the only answer to that is the new birth. The righteousness of God is imputed to us when we are saved. Now, folks, if an absolute, think about this, if an absolute holy God can desire to be reconciled with these wicked murderers, us, like us, Can we find it in our hearts to be reconciled with our brothers and sisters? I'm going to close with these two verses. Jesus sets a pattern for us. And Paul writes to Colossians in 3.13, he says, Bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, look what he says, Even as Christ forgave you, so you all must do not a suggestion it's a command and Ephesians 4:2432 says be kind to one another tender hearted forgiven one another and then he reminds us even as God in Christ forgave you amen let's pray